Here's another study from Calvary Chapel, Rochester. Hey, if you got your Bibles or your iPads or whatever you, whatever you use, if you want to turn to Revelation chapter 10 this morning, that's where we're at in our study in Revelation, Revelation chapter 10. So, with Revelation chapter 10, where are we in the chronology of events? You know, the majority of Revelation, the book of Revelation, covers the seven-year period known as the, the Great Tribulation. Uh, the majority of, that, of, of, of the chapters in, in uh, Revelation cover that seven-year period. Where are we in the seven-year period when we get to chapter 10? I believe, personally, that we're near the second half, or near the end of the second half of the Great Tribulation. You'll recall last year, or last year, last week, uh, it's been a long time, last week uh, there were, we looked at six trumpet judgments that had been sounded, and uh, it was pretty, pretty hairy, <laughs> you know, if, if, if you recall, uh, demons um, that appeared like locusts coming out of the ground, uh, a horde of, of an army, which we weren't sure if it's actually a physical man army or if this was actually more demons, but in any case, bad events occurred uh, there with those judgments. And uh, with all of these, you know, we had the six seals, or seven seals, I should say. There'll be seven trumpet judgments. There'll be seven bowl judgments. John always writes there's an interlude in between them. And and in chapter, uh, well, I don't know the chapter, but the end of the sixth seal, opening of the sixth seal, there was an interlude, which is where we get parenthetical information. Uh, in other words, there's other information that, that uh, things that are taking place going on that, are, that the, the Lord chose to reveal to John, to reveal to us what's going on. Um, when we, got, we looked at six trumpet judgments uh, last week, and, uh, and it seems like maybe now there might be possibly another interlude where it's more parenthetical information. And when I entered into this study, um, I thought, man, it's, it's got to be... It's got to be this interlude, but I'm not, to be honest with you, the more I studied chapter 10, the more I'm like, you know what, I'm not sure if this is parenthetical information. It's possible that this is just part of the sixth trumpet judgment that we were looking at last week. Part of, you know, I'm not an expert on this, but as I was studying, I thought maybe, I'm not sure. But events in chapter 11, which we're not going to look at this morning, but chapter 11 I believe those are parenthetical information. We'll, we'll read about the two witnesses and some other things that we'll, we'll be looking at. So let's take a look at chapter 10, verse 1. I saw still another mighty angel coming down from heaven, clothed with a cloud, and a rainbow was on his head. His face was like the sun, and his feet like pillars of fire. He had a little book open in his hand, and he set his right foot on the sea and his left foot on the land and cried with a loud voice as when a lion roars. When he cried out, seven thunders uttered their voices. You know, this is really good news this week. Because if you recall, like I mentioned earlier, last week, there's these demon hordes that are coming up out of the ground and, and they're tormenting mankind that's alive during the tribulation that are on the earth here. And it's just a terrible time. But now finally, there's an angel coming down from heaven. Finally, some good news we get in this chapter. Well, this angel apparently is huge. In fact, he makes the jolly green giant look like a bean sprout. You know, I mean, this guy's, this guy's huge. Standing with one foot on the, on the sea and one foot on the land. Um, is that significant? Well, yes, it is. The Bible tells us that the land is the Lord's. Psalm 24, verses 1 and 2, The earth is the Lord's in all its fullness, the world and those who dwell therein. Not only that, but the sea is the Lord's. Psalm 8, verses 6 through 8, You have made him to have dominion, speaking of man, over the work of your hands. You have put all things under his feet. All sheep and oxen, excuse me, this is speaking of the Lord. All sheep and oxen, even the beasts of the field, the birds of the air, and the fish of the sea that pass through the paths of the seas. The earth and the sea are the Lord's. So this angel has received authority from heaven to make a declaration that impacts all of creation. That's basically what it's boiling down to. Well, the next question we have is, 
who is this angel? And it's very interesting. You know, I, I, I follow different Bible teachers and I, you know, I look at, you know, what, what's their opinion about this and stuff. And it's interesting. About half of them said this is Jesus Christ. About another half of them said it's, it's an angel. I'll be honest with you. I don't, I don't really know. Um, because some of my favorite ones are on both camps there. So who is this angel? So some Bible scholars and teachers say this is none other than Jesus Christ himself. Others that are respected Bible scholars and teachers say this is exactly what John describes. It's just, it's an angel. But it's an angel that's given great authority and power from God. So for those, and maybe you're here this morning and you're, you're, a, you're a student of, of the book of Revelation and, and you've, already, you've already got an opinion, maybe you're in the Jesus camp. Hopefully we're all in the Jesus camp, but you don't understand what I'm saying. You know, it, it, this, is a, this is Jesus, right? Well, the arguments for it being Jesus, in the Old Testament, there were theophanies, which were appearances of, of God in the, in the Old Testament, appearances of Christ in the Old Testament, they're called theophanies. And there's quite a few times where he is referred to as the angel of the Lord. So there's, you know, in the Old Testament, there's a precedent that an angel of the Lord appeared and it was Jesus. This particular angel in chapter 10 is clothed with the cloud. And we know that when Jesus ascended into heaven, right, he ascended with the cloud. A, a cloud received him into his sight. He disappeared into the clouds, basically. And the angels, you know, the apostles are staring and, and angel appears and says, why are you guys staring at heaven? This same Jesus that you saw go up into the heaven, he's going to return exactly the same way. In fact, in Revelation 1 verse 7, remember John said, behold, he's coming with the clouds. So, could it be Jesus? It says that a rainbow was on his head. Now, a rainbow, of course, you recall that. You were, right away, you, you, you picture Noah's flood, right? A rainbow was a sign of God's covenant, of his grace and his mercy. And we know in chapter 4, when we were studying that, that there was a rainbow around the throne in the appearance like an emerald. It says here that his face, this angel, his face was like the sun. The sun, the brightness of the sun, it's a symbol of God's glory. And we know, uh, in fact, uh, in Mark's gospel, we were studying that on Wednesday nights, we just talked about the transfiguration last week. In Matthew 17, 2, it says, And he was transfigured before them, speaking of Jesus. His face shone like the sun, and his clothes became as white as the light. Back in Revelation chapter 1, verse 16, Jesus er, appears to John. And John says, he had in his right hand seven stars, out of his mouth went a sharp two-edged sword, and his countenance was like the sun shining in its strength. This angel had feet like pillars of fire. Pillars of fire, what's that a picture of? That's a symbol of God's righteous judgment. And again, in Revelation chapter 1, as John sees Jesus, he says his feet were like fine brass, as if refined in a furnace. Again, this angel had a little book open in his hand. When we were in Revelation chapter 5, Jesus, seen as the lamb in chapter 5 that had been slain, he takes a scroll or a book out of the hand of the Father on the throne, and he begins removing the seals. This angel cries with a loud voice as when a lion roars. We know that Jesus is the lion of the tribe of Judah. Amos 3.8 says, A lion has roared. Who will not fear? The Lord God has spoken. Who can but prophesy? And when this angel cries out as, as when a lion roars, it says seven thunders uttered their voices. What are the seven thunders? Well, Psalm 29, a lot of scholars believe that it's referring to Psalm 29, which speaks of the sevenfold voice of the Lord. And I don't, we're not going to read that this morning. You can look it up if you want. But you take all those things together, and a lot of people say, listen, this is Jesus. I mean, it all fits. All, that, all the stuff, it fits. It's got to be Jesus. And yet, there's other Bible scholars that say, no, 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 it's not Jesus. It's exactly what John says. It's another angel. The reason why they say it's another angel is because in verse 1 when he says, I saw still another angel, that another is the Greek word alos. It means another numerically but of the same kind. 
John could have used the word heteros, which means a different kind. But he used alos, same kind. It's in contrast to heteros, another qualitatively other or different one. In other words, a different kind of angel. But he said it was another of the same kind. And they say, say it's, it's, it's another of the same kind of angel that we've been seeing in the, all these other chapters. They also say the fact that Jesus would appear as an angel in the New Testament would set a precedent. Granted, in the Old Testament, Jesus appears as the angel of the Lord. Those are theophanies, but after his resurrection, they're called Christophanies. I learned that this week. I didn't know that. After his resurrection, his appearances were referred to as Christophanies, post-resurrection. In Acts, he appeared to the apostle Paul, it was Saul at the time, as light. It's, you can read that, and I think it's in Acts 9. He also, here in Revelation, appears as a lamb, but he never appears as an angel of the Lord, unless you accept this chapter, is that it? So in other words, in the New Testament, Jesus appearing as an angel would be setting a precedent in the New Testament, after the resurrection. Not only that, but this little book, that book that's in his hand, or a scroll that's in his hand, it's a diminutive of book. In other words, in chapter 5, the Greek word for book or scroll is biblion. In here in chapter 10, you'll notice in your Bibles, if you're reading out of the New King James, it says little, little book or little scroll. And here the word is bibliaridion. Well, I can't pronounce it right. Bibliaridion. <laughs> Whatever. <laughs> you guys probably get the hint. Uh, actually, yeah, it's up there. Okay, you can read it yourself. Um, so if, if the Biblion in chapter 5 is a book, the Biblion thing here on chapter 10 is a booklet. It would be like a little pamphlet, basically. So they say it's not, the same, it's not the same scroll. It's not the same book that we saw in the Lamb's hand in chapter 5. As to all the other people who say, well, wait a minute, what about all those other, you know, his feet like fine brass, the, his, the rainbow over his head, his face shining like the sun? I mean, how, do you, how can you explain that not being Jesus? Do you recall in the Old Testament when Moses went up on Mount Sinai and he came down after he received the commandments? His face was shining. In fact, he had to put a veil on it because it was starting to fade away. And a lot of people say that this is an angel say, listen, he had just departed from the throne of God, and he's reflecting God's glory. And, you know, that makes sense. In 1 John 3, verse 2, we're told, Beloved, now we are children of God, and it has not yet been revealed what we shall be, but we know that when he is revealed, we shall be like him, for we shall see him as he is. One day you and I are going to reflect Jesus when we see him face to face. As to the seven thunders that utter their voice when this angel roars as a lion, listen, he's coming with full authority from heaven. And in heaven, we saw that earlier, where whenever the 24 elders or the four living creatures, they start worshiping the Lord, they start, they start speaking praise to the Lord, the other group starts joining in, right? It's like all heaven starts resounding in, in joy, resonating with the worship there. And it could be that's what's taking place here. When this angel makes his declaration, the voice of the Lord is confirming it. As to the angel standing with one feet, uh, excuse me, one foot on the sea and one on the land, if this is Jesus, there's a little bit of a problem. Because in Zechariah, according to Zechariah, the next time that Jesus physically steps foot on this land, on the earth, he's going to be setting his foot on Mount Olives. It says in Zechariah 14.4, And in that day his feet will stand on the Mount of Olives, which faces Jerusalem on the east, and on the Mount of Olives shall be split in two from east to west, making a very large valley. Half of the mountain shall move toward the north, and half of it toward the south. That's, that's right when the millennium is going to start. So that's the arguments for it's not a Jesus, it's an angel. Now whoever this angel is, if it's Jesus, or it's just a very large, high-ranking angel, and maybe you're on one side or the other side, it's nothing to cry heresy over, right? We don't want to. We don't want to. We don't want to burn anybody at the stake because they think it's Jesus and it's not, or they think it's an angel, because that's not very, in my opinion, it was just not important. To be honest with you, I don't really know. I'll, in my own opinion, I kind of side with it. It's got to be an angel, 
but it could be Jesus. We're not really told for sure. Well, look at verse 4. It says, Now when the seven thunders uttered their voices, I was about to write, but I heard a voice from heaven saying to me, Seal up the things which the seven thunders uttered, and do not write them. Doesn't that bug you? It's like, come on, tell us, what, what, did, the, what did the seven thunders utter? You know, there's people that probably have books out there that probably, they probably can tell you what they think the seven thunders uttered, but they've got to be wrong because nobody knows. These are things of God that are a secret. And he doesn't reveal everything to man. There are things that God doesn't reveal to us in this life. Are you okay with that? I know people that have to have everything figured out. But to me, in my opinion, if you can figure out everything about God, he's, would he be worthy of worshiping? Would he be worthy of being God if, if you could figure out everything? Think about all the prophecies of Christ's first coming. Okay, we've got like over 300 prophecies, right? about his first coming. We knew that he would be coming, uh, he'd be in a manger. We have lots of details. We know that he'd be born in Bethlehem, he'd be the son of David, he'd be born of a virgin, and we could go on and on and on with about 300 prophecies. And yet, there was still a lot about his first coming that wasn't in the prophets. You know, we didn't know that there would be a census in the land that would cause jo uh, Jacob and, or Joseph and Mary to go down to Bethlehem from Nazareth. We, didn't, we weren't told that there'd be wise men from the east coming to visit the, Jesus. The appearance of the angels to the shepherds, that wasn't prophesied. And yet that's all part of it. But that wasn't revealed. So there was only one person who knew what the seven thunders uttered, and that was John himself. And, you know, he's been writing the book of Revelation, right? He's, he's writing everything that he's seeing, and, and the Lord stops and says, no, don't write this down. It's just for you, John. It's just for you. He was meant to hear it, but no one else. You know, sometimes God does that with you and I. You're, doing, you're having your devotions with the Lord, and he'll just, he'll just speak to your heart. And it's something for you. It's not necessarily something you have to share with everybody else. There are times when you do. I've, I've shared stuff with Teresa, like, Lord, or Lord, <laughs> Teresa, this is what the Lord shared with me, and she's done the same thing with me. But there's times when the Lord just speaking to my heart, and it's just, it's for me. That's part of having that personal relationship with the Lord. That's the blessing of having a personal relationship with the Lord. Verse 5. The angel whom I saw standing on the sea and on the land raised up his hand to heaven and swore by him who lives forever and ever, who created heaven and the things that are in it and the earth and the things that are in it and the sea and the things that are in it, that there should be delay no longer. But in the days of the sounding of the seventh angel, when he is about to sound, the mystery of God would be finished as he declared to his servants, the prophets. So this angel swore by him who lives forever and ever, who created heaven and the things that are in it and the earth and the things that are in it and the sea that and the things that are in it. Listen, and this is kind of where I go too. If this is Jesus, why wouldn't he just swear by himself? In Hebrews 6 Verse 13 and 14, we're told, For when God made a promise to Abraham, because he could swear by no one greater, he swore by himself, saying, Surely, blessing, I will bless you, and multiplying, I will multiply you. And yet this angel swears by him who created the heavens. So, again, I've, actually, it's interesting. I've heard someone use the same verse in Hebrews 6, 13 and 14, saying, See, it's got to be Jesus. <laughs> so, again, I don't know. I think what's important is what this angel's declaring. And I think that's the meat of this message here, or at least this part of it, is that there should be delay no longer. Now, if you have a King James Version, your Bible says that there should be time no longer. I think delay is a more accurate translation. Why? Because that word chronos, which is the Greek word for time or delay, it can mean time, but it can also imply delay. And if it literally meant time was, from now on, time is ending, that's not accurate. Because we know that there's a thousand year reign of Christ on the earth. There's still time periods that are, that are coming. So delay, I think, is an, accurate, is an accurate translation. That there should be delay no longer. In other words, God's judgment. It's the, the consummation, the God's judgment. It's, it's a commencement, I should say, of God's judgment upon mankind. It's, 
It's, it's about to be completed. But in the days of the sounding of the seventh angel, it says, when he is about to sound, the mystery of God would be finished as he declared to his servants the prophets. The mystery of God, that word is mysterion. In the New Testament, we read of lots of mysteries. I'll give you just a few as an example. In 2 Thessalonians 2.7, Paul talks about the mystery of lawlessness. In Romans 11.25, we read of the mystery of Israel's spiritual blindness. In 1 Corinthians 14.2, we read about the mystery of speaking in tongues. In 1 Corinthians 15.51, we read about the mystery of the rapture of the church. In 1 Timothy 3.16, we read of the mystery of godliness. So there's lots of mysteries in the Bible. What, what is this mystery? Listen, I want to just explain something to you. In the Bible, okay, now, when you think of mysteries, I think of like Agatha Christie or, you know, some things like Masterpiece Theater or something like that. But a biblical mystery is different than an Agatha Christie novel, okay? In the Bible, a mystery is not something that no one knows. It's like no one, no one knows this. In the Bible... A mystery is something that no one can know by human investigation or by investigating or by human deduction. In other words, Jessica Fletcher, she's not going to figure it out. Hercule, Hercule, I always, Perot, he's not going to figure it out either. See, in the Bible, a mystery is something that you can't know unless it's been revealed to you. That's what, that's what a mystery is in the Bible. And it has to be revealed to you by God. And what, the, what it's saying there in verse 7 is this mystery of God had been revealed to his prophets in the Old Testament. Zechariah 14.9, for example, And the Lord shall be king over all the earth. In that day it shall be the Lord is one, and his name one. Now we look at the earth right now, and Jesus isn't king over all the earth, right? The earth isn't subjected to him. But there's a time coming, and the prophets were told, hey, the Lord is going to be king over all the earth. In Psalm 72, there's quite a few verses that are prophetic about uh, the end days. It says, he will bring justice to the poor of the people. He will save the children of the needy and will break in pieces the oppressor. We don't really see that right now today, right? It's a mystery why it isn't taking place. In his days... Another verse, in his days the righteous shall flourish and abundance of peace until the moon is no more. And then another verse yet in Psalm 72, yes, all kings shall fall down before him, all nations shall serve him. That, that was revealed to the prophets in the Old Testament. Right now, there's mysteries that we don't have an answer for. Right? I mean, just the other week, right? Why would God seem to allow a gunman to come into a school and shoot up all these children. Why didn't God stop it? And there's, there's people that are saying, where's God? Where's God when this happened? Why would God allow it? It's a mystery. I don't have an answer for that. I mean, I can say, well, it's because, you know, the teachers aren't armed and, you know, and we, we, everybody's got an answer, but nobody really has an answer. It's a mystery. It's a mystery. Why, why, why didn't God stop it? I, don't, I can't answer that. Why does the wicked seem to prosper and the righteous seem to suffer? It's a mystery. Why does God allow Satan to deceive people? Man, right now it's a mystery. But when the seventh angel, excuse me, these things are a mystery to us, right? They haven't been revealed to us. And in verse 7, the mystery of God seems to mean the whole purpose of God in human history. It's going to finally be revealed. It's going to finally make sense. When the seventh angel sounds his trumpet at the end of the great tribulation, God's going to usher in Christ's thousand-year reign on the earth, and after that, the new heavens and the new earth. At that time, all those mysteries are going to finally be revealed. It's going to make sense to us at that time. Are you okay with that? There are things that you just, you just don't have an answer for. Sometimes as a pastor, you know, you meet with people that have gone through, they've had tragedies in their lives, and, and, and it's like they're looking for you, and you, you feel the pressure. Man, i, I got to give them an answer, and a lot of times I'm like, man, I don't know what to say, but I'm here. Can I pray with you? 
Because I don't have an answer, and it would be foolish for me, and it would be insincere for me to say, well, I know why this is happening, because I don't. But when all those, when God's purposes are revealed in heaven, I think we're just going to, we're going to be in awe of his wisdom. Right now, things don't make sense. Like, God, why would you allow that thing to happen? But when, it, when we see God face to face and all the mysteries are revealed, we go, God, you're so wise in, how, in, in the, your timing. You were so wise in all that you did. We couldn't see it on this side of eternity, but now it makes sense. Verse 8. Then the voice which I heard from heaven spoke to me again and said, Go take the little book which is open in the hand of the angel who stands on the sea and on the earth. So I went to the angel and said to him, Give me the little book. He probably said it real politely, please. Um, And he said to me, Take and eat it, and it will make your stomach bitter, but it will be as sweet as honey in your mouth. Then I took the little book out of the angel's hand and ate it, and it was as sweet as honey in my mouth. But when I had eaten it, my stomach became bitter. Does that sound kind of weird to you? Eating a scroll? (laughs) My daughter used to pick up when she was just a little toddler like Jude's age. She'd find any little piece of paper she'd find on the ground, she'd shove it in her mouth, and she always had paper in her mouth all the time. Um, that seems kind of weird, eating a scroll. But you know, again, it's not a precedent. In the Old Testament, Ezekiel was told to eat a scroll. And in Ezekiel chapter 3, verses 1 through 3, he describes it. says, hey, it tasted like honey in my mouth. Man, it was sweet. It tasted good. But then in verse 14, it says, afterwards... He was left with a bitterness. He got indigestion, basically. This whole concept of eating a scroll or eating a book, it may seem strange to you, but how often have you said to someone, man, I just devoured that book. Man, it was so good, I devoured it. Right? Did you eat the book literally? No, you, but you, know, you, just got, you were so engrossed in it. I like what the psalmist says, Psalm 119.103. How sweet are your words to my taste sweeter than honey to my mouth? See this little scroll or booklet? What was it? I mean, you know, hey, inquiring minds want to know. I mean, we want to know, what is this book? But again, something, it was just meant for John to read and internalize. It was just for him. See, the importance, this brings out the importance of personal Bible reading and prayer spent with the Lord. He wants to reveal things to you. It's just for you. He wants to speak things to you and it's that's part of a conversations. You know, my wife and I, you know, we, we have intimate conversations and sometimes it's, it's just a conversation that just her and I are having. I'm not going to share it with you guys. It's just, it's just between me and her. This is what the Lord wants with each one of us. Why was the word sweet to John? Well, think about it. God's promises, his love, his encouragement, his hope, his peace, his comfort, man, those are sweet things. Jeremiah 15 verse 16 says this, Your words were found, and I ate them. And your word was to me the joy and rejoicing of my heart. And listen to this, for I am called by your name. O Lord God of hosts. When you and I read of God's promises, we go, yeah, that applies to me because I'm one of his children. I'm his servant, man. Man, what a blessing to have eternal life. It's so good. It's so sweet. But why did it become bitter in his stomach afterwards? Listen, although God's purposes for history is about to be completed, I mean, think about it. Finally, evil is going to be dealt with. Finally, all those things that we don't have an answer for, there's going to be an answer. Finally, heaven, where our, our labor is done, and we get to spend eternity in Christ's presence. How sweet it is, like the guy used to say, right? How sweet it is. And yet, it's bitter. Why? Because John knew that there's going to be many people that were going to reject Jesus Christ, and were going to be cast into the lake of fire. They'd be suffering throughout eternity. And I think knowing what awaited unbelievers would give John heartburn. Let me ask you this. Does your heart burn? Does your heart burn for those that are spiritually dead and on the road to the lake of fire? I mean, that's why we're doing our outreaches. It's not to grow the church. 
Our outreach is just to reach the lost here in this community because they're on their way to hell. They don't even realize it. Are your, is your heart burning for the lost? Verse 11. And he said to me, you must prophesy again about many peoples, nations, tongues, and kings. When you read that, does it sound like you must prophesy? You must prophesy. You know, you, you got to do this. That's not what the word actually means. It's not you shall prophesy, but it literally means it's necessary or it's inevitable that you're going to prophesy. You see that burning in his heart. He, he, he had to do something with it. He had, he had to minister to people. He had to reach out and tell them, hey, this is what's happening. This is what's coming. This is what God's word should be doing for you and I. Let me ask you this. Are you feeding on God's word? You might say, well, yeah, I read it. Okay, that's, that's great. I'm, that's, that's the first step, right? First step of, 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 of feeding on God's word is literally reading it. But let me ask you this. Let's go take it a step further. Are you internalizing it? Are you, are, you, is it, are you receiving it into yourself? What do you mean by that? How do I know if I'm internalizing it? Listen, if you're reading God's word and you're taking it in and you're internalizing it, it's going to cause two reactions, possibly two different reactions, or probably both. It will reveal your sin to you. I know whenever I read the scriptures, a lot of times I'm like, wow, I don't, I don't measure up to that. I don't measure up to your standard, God. And, or, because I think sometimes it's both, it'll give you a burden for the lost. Listen, I love things that are they're sweet. Right, My wife can tell you that. I've got a sweet tooth. I love sweets. And I actually love sour things. My grandson, uh, uh, Thor, man, he's a man after my own heart. He loves lemons. Anything sour, he loves sour. And I do too. You know, my dad, it's interesting. He loves sweets, so we had that in common. But he didn't like sour things. He hated sour stuff. He liked bitter things. You know, he liked to eat like Swiss chard, mustard greens, this stuff that, you know, should only be fed to cattle. He liked that stuff. I hated it as a kid, man. I was like, give me something sweet or something sour. He's like, sour. Ugh, I don't like sour. You stay away from what you don't like, don't you? I do. You know, sometimes Teresa makes things like, oh, honey, I no, you know, usually to make her happy, I'll eat it. But listen, a lot of people don't like to read the Word of God. Why? Because to them it's bitter. It causes a bitterness. They don't want to be confronted with their sin. So what do they do? They avoid it. I, I, I want to share this with you. You know, we live in a consumer culture. I grew up when television was, you know, I, mean, I remember we got our first color television. Some of you were older than me. You remember when TV first came out? Maybe. I don't know if you're that old. But I remember when television... You, you basically had rabbit ears on your television, okay? And uh, your reception was basically whatever, however you could adjust those antennas, you put foil on it, or whatever you, could, whatever you could do to pick up a station that was broadcasting in your area. Now, I lived in the San Francisco Bay Area, so we had quite a few stations to choose from. But you get out into some of these rural communities or in the mountains where there's not that much reception, you're stuck with whatever you're stuck with, right? Jeopardy, you know, or whatever it is, you know, Wheel of Fortune. You, you're stuck with that. You don't have any choice, but then cable TV came along. Woohoo! Remember that? You know what was an interesting thing? Do you remember what was the first uh, advantage of having cable television? No commercials. <laughs> That's what they, there's no commercials on cable television. Look at it today. Um, after cable television came along, man, satellite TV came on. Now, we never had a satellite TV, but you know, you could, you could tune in all your different channels with satellite men's choices. But now, not only do you have cable, not only do you have satellite TV, but now you can live stream. Man, any kind of, any kind of network or channel you want to live stream. Whatever you want to watch, man, you have that option. You don't like a show? Hey, man, this is, this is bitter, man. It's not sweet. I don't like it. Click, right? Man, I don't want to watch that. You know, and it's, if you're like me, sometimes I'm clicking, 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 clicking for about two hours, and finally like, I might as well go to bed because it's already too late. You know, couldn't find anything I want to watch. That's our culture, right? I mean, you guys are smiling because you guys can identify. I know you can. 
We're all like that. We're all couch potatoes to some extent. But you know what's a sad thing? Is that mindset's crept into the church. It's crept into our spiritual lives too. We're consumer Christians. You're being confronted with sin and you're uncomfortable with the word? (laughs) Click. I don't like that, man. So what do you do? You don't like what the preacher's saying? It's making you feel uncomfortable? You know, dealing with scripture that leaves a bitter taste? Man, I don't want that, man. Give me the sweet stuff. I don't want anything that's that's not agreeing with me. I want sweet stuff. Tell me the good stuff or I'm out of here. Click. That's our culture. Today, for most people, or not for most people, but for a lot of people, I'd say, church is an optional thing. <laughs> church attendance is an optional thing. You know, when I grew up, <laughs> you didn't have a choice, man. You, you went to church. If you were sick or dead, then you, then you didn't have to go. And you had to prove you were sick. <laughs> but, but if you weren't, you know, and I, I get the thermometer. I did it for school, too. You know, try to <laughs> rub it. You know, try there, it's 98.7. See? <laughs> you know, sometimes it worked, sometimes it didn't. But today, right, if you don't feel like going to church, eh, don't go. Or, you know, it doesn't make me feel good. I'm not going to go. Or I'll, I will go if it makes me feel good. Or if I feel like attending. Or here's another thing. You know, there's nothing else to choose on my calendar. I might as well go to church. I mean, there's nothing else, you know. It's, I'll go then if it fits in my schedule. I want to share this with you guys, and maybe I'm preaching to the choir, but I want to share this. This is on my heart lately. This is in Acts 2, verse 46 to 47. It says this, So continuing daily with one accord in the temple, and breaking bread from house to house, they ate their food with gladness and simplicity of heart, praising God and having favor with all the people. And the Lord added to the church daily those who were being saved. Man, the, the new believers, they were so on fire about the Lord. They were so on fire in that fellowship. They were just meeting as much as they could. They were hungry for fellowship. They were hungry for gathering together. And they were praising God and having favor with all the people. You know, I, I get this quite frequently. In fact, Teresa and I were at uh, Sam's Club. and We met a lady there. She saw Teresa had a Calvary Chapel shirt. She goes, Calvary Chapel? I used to attend one. So we were talking to her and invited her to church. Um, and... Uh, Anyways, she says, well, how many people attend your church? And, I, and I, this is kind of my standard answer. Well, if everyone shows up, <laughs> we've got X amount of people. But usually it's this amount to this amount. Because that's, that's reality, right? And I'm not knocking anybody, but that's, that's just what it is. I want to share a few things with you, though. You know, Wednesday evenings, we do a potluck here at the church. I, for a while there, I was running over, you know, it was getting later to like 9 o'clock. I, I finally felt, okay, i got to stop it at 8.30. So we start at 6.30 sharp. We end at 8.30, as sharp as I can, which is maybe a minute or two, but usually within five minutes of 8.30, we're stopping it. There's food, man. Come and eat. And you know what? You Maybe, maybe you're like, you know, I, I can't afford to bring a meal all the time. It's too expensive. Don't. <laughs> There's usually plenty of food. Just come and eat. And maybe go, well, you know what? I got dietary restrictions or, you know, I don't like what you guys are eating or I just don't want to get sick so I don't eat potlucks. You know, no, that's, that's a legitimate concern for some. You don't even have to eat with us. There are people that just show up after they eat or they come and just hang out while we're eating and then they're, they're here for the rest of it. Come for that. If you have questions... Man, this is the excellent time. It would be kind of awkward for somebody right now to raise their hand and ask a question, okay, in the Sunday morning service. just kind of awkward. I did it in the hotel once. It's kind of a funny story when we were starting out. I don't know, if Dan, if you remember that, but there was a lady that was in the back, and we had a kind of a smaller group, and they were teaching, and I was kind of new at it, and, and it got to the end of the message, and the lady raises her hand, and I said, do you have a question? She goes, yes, we should not listen to anything that Paul says. And I'm like, what? <laughs> I said, wait a minute, wait. And she was going on. I said, lady, sit down. I'll talk to you later. You know, I was like, I'll never do that again. <laughs> but Wednesday nights, man, that's a, good, that's a good venue. If you have questions, man, that's a good time to ask questions. You have insights in the scripture. Maybe the Lord showed you something that it's like, maybe it's, it's so good. It's like, I, I can't just keep it to myself. I've got to share it with you guys. Come on Wednesday nights, man. Share what the Lord's been showing you. 
and teaching you. Or maybe as we're going through a certain scripture, go, you know what? This is what I see in the scripture. Man, this is an excellent opportunity for that. Maybe you want to share praise reports or, or you need prayer or you're lonely. Man, Wednesday nights, man, it's vital to you guys. It's vital and it's there for you. Listen, some people go, you know what? I just, I just do the home church thing. I don't know. You wouldn't be here if you were a home churcher, I guess. But there are people that are they, it's like, forget about the established church. I, I'm just I'm going to do it in my home. Listen, that's fine. If it's centered around prayer, if it's centered around the word and fellowship with other believers who can encourage you and exhort you and maybe sometimes confront you. But if you think, I'm just going to grow in the Lord by myself. I'm just going to read the word and pray. And, you know, I'll do it every day and I'll be... Re- I, I got news for you. You're not going to mature. Why? Because you have nobody who can hold you accountable. Our hearts are deceptive. And we can deceive ourselves. When I'm by myself, I think I'm the most spiritual guy around until my wife says, hey, <laughs> you're a jerk. Why did you say that? Why did you do that? I'm like... I don't want to talk to her. No, I was just kidding. <laughs> just leave me alone. No, but seriously, if you're out of fellowship and by yourself and you're not attending church or you're simply praying and reading by yourself, you're not going to grow. You're not going to grow. Ephesians 4, verses 4 through 7, Paul says this. There is one body and one spirit, just as you were called and one hope of your calling. One Lord, one faith, one baptism, one God and Father of all, who is above all and through all and in you all. But to each of one of us, grace was given according to the measure of Christ's gift. That word grace is the word charisma. It's where we get the word spiritual gifts. To each one of us, we've received gifts from the Holy Spirit. Ephesians 4, verse 11 and 12. And he himself gave some to be apostles, some prophets, some evangelists, some pastors and teachers for the equipping of the saints, for the work of the ministry, for the edifying of the body of Christ, for building up the body of Christ. Verses 15 and 16 of Ephesians 4. But speaking the truth in love may grow up in all things in him who is the head Christ, from whom the whole body joined and knit together by what every joint supplies, according to the effective working by which every part does its share, causes growth of the body for the edifying of itself in love. Listen, each one of you, if you're a believer in Jesus Christ this morning, you have at least one spiritual gift that the Lord God has given you, and it's for edifying the body of Christ, for building up uh, a gift. And, and in many cases, most of you have more than one spiritual gift. You have many, many gifts. The purpose is for the edification of the local body of Christ. There's a reason why there's different gifts, because we're meant to be together to build one another up. If I had all the gifts, I wouldn't need any of you. I could just be here by myself and be the super Christian. But I need you. I need some. I definitely need some that have organizational gifts, the gift of administration. Because, man, I don't have that gift. I definitely need that gift. Listen, if you're not participating in the life of the body, either here locally or another church, because there's like 100 different churches in town here. Of course, I'd love for everybody to this, this be their church. But you know what? As long as you're in a church that's teaching the Bible, I had a conversation, an online conversation with someone in this neighborhood that was asked for recommendations of, for churches, and I, I told her about our church, and at the end I, I just said, hey, I just pray that you find a Bible-teaching church that believes in the Bible and stuff. And nobody liked it, except later on she responded, and she liked it. But there's other people like the Mormons and everything. Nobody was commenting on the click, they like it. You know, they, nobody liked it, but she did finally, so who knows, maybe one day she'll show up. Um, but anyways... If you're not participating in the life of the body, either here or somewhere else locally, you're not maturing spiritually, and you're also not, you're hindering the body of Christ because we need you. We need your gift. Whatever it is the Lord's giving you, we need it because we don't have it all. Now, one thing I want to encourage you guys with, uh, Teresa and I went to Wisconsin Rapids. There was a, a, a what it's called a huddle. And it's basically uh, pastors and wives, we get together 
the group of Calvary Chapel pastors and and uh, Bill Goodrich came from Indianapolis uh, Horizon in Indianapolis and uh, we met and we were just sharing about our ministries and stuff and it was my turn to share I'm like what do I want to share you know what I shared I shared this with them I said I was so blessed a couple Sundays ago when we had our meeting where we asked people if you want to be involved in children's ministry or VBS if you come to this meeting we'll, we'll have discussion stuff I was blown away by how many of you guys were in that meeting. It just it blew my socks off. I was expecting three or four. We were wall-to-wall of people like this. We ran out of places to sit, basically. It was a blessing to have that many people. You know, and some people say, well, you know what, I, I, I don't want to, you know, we got this VBS coming up. You might say, well, you know what, I don't have the gift of teaching. I'm not gifted in, in the area of teaching. No problem. No problem. We need people with the gift of mercy. We need people with the gift of evangelism. We need people with the gift of administration. I need that personally. We need people with the gift of faith. We need those different gifts. You don't just have to be a teacher, but we need those gifts. Another thing I want to share with you. We have what's called the upper room. It's a third Sunday of the month. We do it from 6.30 to 7.30 p.m. The purpose behind it it's, it's a time when we gather. It's, I, I'm not teaching from the word. We're, we're, sometimes we're just a few of us sitting here or stuff, and we're just we're worshiping the Lord. We're praying. We're waiting on the Lord. And if somebody's gifts of the Spirit, we're open to that at that time. Listen, there's no, there's no chandeliers in here, so nobody's swinging on anything. You know, we're not hooping and hollering. You know, some of the things that you've seen on TV, that's just, to me, it's an abuse. It's, it's just the flesh. It's not what's taking place here. But I do tell you what, what happens is the Spirit speaks to us. Because we'll sense it. You know, we'll, we'll, people will be sharing things, but, and we'll sense a theme throughout the evening. And we only do it for about an hour. I don't want to make it too long. You know, usually if you end good things shorter, it's like, it's, oh, that was sweet. I want to do it again. If you drag it on for three hours, people go, oh, man, I can't wait to get out of here. So we don't do that, right? But that's the purpose, the body of the Christ, you know, those with different gifts to come together to encourage each other. But I have to be frank with you. When we have our meetings here at the church, I'm the heel. That's the part of the body I am. I'm the heel, so I'm here. There might be a toe. There might be an ear here. And you know what I think sometimes? I'm like, where's the feet? Where's the mouth? Where's the hands? Where's the rest of the body of Christ? There's just a few parts here. And we're blessed. We're encouraged by it. Listen, I, I want to share this with you in all honesty. Okay, I'm being honest with you guys, and I'm being sincere, and I also want to tell you, I'm saying this in love. If you're not actively participating in this body, this local body of believers, or in another local body of believers, you're really not following God's plan for his church. Because God's plan for his church wasn't you to be a lone ranger. It was to be in fellowship with one another, to encourage and grow one another. And again, I might be preaching to the crowd here. But I honestly believe that. So the word that I'm speaking to you today, <laughs> maybe you go, wow, that's kind of bitter. That's not a sweet message. That's, not, that's, that's leaving a bad taste in my mouth right now. We're out of here. Click. You know? <laughs> Listen, if I, if I could apologize, I would, but I can't. I can't apologize for God's word. But I can do this. I can provide a remedy for that bitterness. If you have your Bibles, turn with me to Exodus chapter 15, and I'm going to be closing with the scripture. Exodus chapter 15, verse 22. You guys are familiar with the story. It says, So Moses brought Israel from the Red Sea. Then they went out into the wilderness of Shur, and they went three days in the wilderness and found no water. Now when they came to Merah, they could not drink the waters of Merah, for they were bitter. Therefore, the name of it was called Merah. And the people complained against Moses, saying, What shall we drink? So he cried out to the Lord, and the Lord showed him a tree. When he cast it into the waters, the waters were made sweet. You know, in the Bible, the water is always a picture of the Word of God. What's a tree a picture of? The cross of Christ. Listen, if the word is bitter to you this morning, maybe, maybe it's like it's dealing with your, it's like your own sins being revealed to you. Let me encourage you. There's a way to make that bitter word sweet, and that's applying the cross to your situation. Applying the cross of Christ. 
repenting of your sin, allowing Jesus to turn the word from bitterness to sweetness. Maybe you've got just maybe it's maybe it's not bitter in that respect, but it's bitter because you're just grieving over the lost. Again, apply the cross of Christ to him. Start sharing the love of Christ with people. Relieve that burden. The word that's bitter, it can be made sweet. It can be made sweet when we bring it to the cross, we bring it to Christ. We ask him to forgive us of our sins. Maybe there's a change we need to make. I want to encourage you guys in this. Again, I was totally blessed by your participation. And I don't want you to feel like I'm singling out individuals because I'm certainly not. I'm just sharing my heart. And uh, take whatever this message that I gave you today, bring it to the cross. Say, Lord, what do you want to deal with me personally in my life? How, how should I internalize this message myself? I encourage you to go back and read through the scripture and just ask the Lord to reveal things to you. He will. He will reveal himself to you. So I want to encourage you with that. Why don't we pray? Heavenly Father, I thank you for this morning. Lord, I thank you for your word. And Lord, I know there are times when I read your word, it, it causes bitterness, Lord. It's, it's, it's not pleasant, Lord. It's confrontational. But Lord, I know that those times are the very times when I need to respond. Lord, when I need to do something to make it sweet. And the only way to do that is to come to you to ask you to forgive me and to change me. That's the only way that waters can become sweet, Lord God, your word. So this morning we come before you, Lord God. We thank you for your cross. Lord, we thank you that you took our sin and our shame and you, you bore it on the cross when you died for us. Lord, I thank you that you rose again from the dead, that, Lord, you ascended into heaven, and, Lord, you are returning. And we look at the signs of the times and we, we realize that it, it's soon. And Lord, I'm reminded of that scripture where you said, will you find faith on the earth when you return? Lord, may we be faithful to you. And Lord, I pray that as we see your approach coming, as we sense it in our own hearts, Lord, as creation is starting to moan and to cry out, Lord, that, that bitterness, that burden for the lost, Lord, that we would do something about it, Lord, that we would apply the cross to that, that we would share your love with those around us, Lord God. I pray for our outreaches that we'll be doing here this coming summer. Lord, may it be fruitful, Lord. May we participate. So I thank you for this body. I thank you for each and every person that's here this morning, Lord. I pray your blessing upon him now as we partake in, of communion. It's in Jesus' name that we pray.